welcome to this edition of Labor Vision. I'm Bob Delaney, Executive Director of the Institute for Labor Studies and Research. Labor Vision, a production of the Institute, focuses on topics of importance to working Rhode Islanders. We hope you enjoy this edition. Welcome to Labor Vision, the at-home edition. Labor Vision is a production of the Institute for Labor Studies and Research. I am your host, Erica Hammond, and joining me today from the Rhode Island AFL-CIO is President George Nee and Secretary-Treasurer Patrick Crowley. Thank you so much for joining us again on Labor Vision. Oh, glad to be here. All right. Now, last time you were both on, we talked a little bit about what happened following the last legislative session. We didn't actually get a glimpse into what to expect for the next one. So why don't we start with what we can expect in the next legislative session specific to the state budget? All right, uh, we'll kick it off. Uh, this is gonna be uh, a continuation of very uh, confusing times. Normally the governor would be uh, submitting the budget for the uh, fiscal 22. Oh boy, this is 22, believe it, which is the year starting uh, July 1st, 2021. Uh, she would be uh, required to submit that budget in January. In the budget that is being proposed at the moment, she was given an extension. So the next budget effective January, uh, July 1st of 2021 won't be submitted until March of this year. Um, we are going to be lobbying the governor's office uh, to put some certain things in the budget because our experience has been that if she puts them in, it's, it's easier to get the dialogue going. So the first will be the minimum wage. Uh, we are hopeful that we will finally get to a path to $15 so that we can be consistent with uh, Massachusetts uh, and Connecticut. So. What we will be proposing is to increase the minimum wage to $12.50 in October of 2021. Right now it's $11.50, it just went up in October. Then to $13.50 in October of 2022, and, 20, 2022, and then the big jump to $15 an hour in October of 2023. That will put us uh, in line uh, with Massachusetts and Connecticut to the $15. Um, we have not been able to do that in the past to get double jumps, uh, but this is, I think it's, it's time. And I think there's a lot of sentiment for that. So that'll be one issue. Um, we're also, will uh, be uh, advocating for continued increase in, in funding for the developmentally disabled community and for the nursing home industry uh, to get those uh, standards and those raises even higher. Um, in terms of some other issues that will be in the budget, uh, we will be uh, advocating very strongly for a significant uh, tax increase uh, for people who are making over, for, on the income for people over $475,000 a year to raise a, a new, create a new top rate uh, from 5.99% of that income to 8.99%. That will raise approximately $128 million. Mm -hmm. um, the significance of that is that we got through this budget with a tremendous amount of federal funds. 
So going forward, the next year's budget is actually a little bleaker than this year's budget uh, because of the ability to use those federal funds. So uh, that will um, uh, provide a source of revenue, uh, which I, I, I think will be necessary so that we don't get into any cuts uh, in critical services or education. And we'll also be advocating for uh, increased FTEs, uh, that's personnel, at both the DL at DLT uh, on uh, wage and hour enforcement and prevailing wage, and also at taxation to make sure that people are paying their fair amount of taxes. So that's kind of an overview of what we're trying to put in the budget. Pat, do you have it? Did, did we, did we uh, miss a few things? Well, just a, a couple of points of emphasis, George, especially on the the proposal about increasing uh, the taxes on earners over $475,000. I mean, working with our partners at the Economic Progress Institute, you know, that's really identified, that's the 1% in Rhode Island. And just, just to give a, a sense of how many people that uh, would apply to, it's about 5,000 tax filers here in Rhode Island. So if you can imagine that this simple increase that would only impact the really elite of the elite, it's only about 5,000 people in the state but bringing in $128 million into the state coffers to you know, spend on programs that are important, I think shows just how much the income gap has grown between the 1% in this state and the rest of the working class you know, across the entire state. I mean, it's a problem that the, the entire country faces, uh, but I, I, I hope we have an opportunity here in Rhode Island to make some forward progress on that. Um, and the only other thing I would add in, George, is that I think it's important that the, the, the political leaders in the state just recall, I mean, it's been COVID, so things have been busy, but the, uh, the contract for all of the state workers expired in the summer, uh, this past summer. So workers have been working on an expired agreement and it would be a very good idea if in the budgetary process, there was some acknowledgement that, you know, given the, the, the extraordinary amount of effort that all state workers have done, but especially the lower paid workers, the workers at the hospital systems, the workers, the kitchen aides, and you know, the folks that work at the, at the service jobs at the, at the universities and state colleges and community college. You know, those folks really need some kind of acknowledgement. It would be nice if in the, the budget, you know, we planned to have you know, uh, the ability to fund a deep contract for all of our public service workers. Yeah, good point, good point. Um, the, the other, is, it, this is sort of like uh, more of a, what we don't want to see in the budget. Mm -hmm. uh, and that would be uh, uh, additional funds for the expansion of charter schools. Yeah. Uh, this, this is uh, getting out of hand. Uh, it's starting to be a severe uh, threat to a vibrant and uh, robust uh, public education system. There's more and more of these schools that are being uh, or trying to get certified. And, um, you know, I, I think if we can start to get more scrutiny through the budgetary process uh, on the uh, funding for the charter schools, I think that would be beneficial to a really powerful public education system. Right. And I just had a quick clarifying question as well. Going back to the uh, increased tax. Yep. That portion. The increased tax would be for earners over 175. 
thousand. Oh, four hundred seventy-five. I'm sorry, four hundred and seventy-five thousand, yeah. and it's only the what they're what they're making over that amount that's being taxed. That burden. that's that's correct. So that that puts it in even amazing perspective. So, mm -hmm. you know, the first four hundred and seventy-five thousand that they earn, they're paid at the the present tax right. rate. Mm -hmm. So that increases only for that money after that. And it still raises $128 million. I mean, that's an awful lot of money out there. You know, it's significant when you really, hands. yeah, when you really break it down in that, it's, it's a significant amount of money and it's a very small amount of not only people, but it's, it's not the full, uh, what they're making. You know what I mean? It's kind of, it's exactly about it like that. Um, okay. And I would encourage all of our viewers to check out the campaign website, www.revenue4ri.org. There's a okay. lot of great information there that the coalition of folks has, has publicized and, you know, really thank our partners at EPI for their, their hard work on that. Yeah. And then another piece that I want you guys to talk a little bit more about in detail is um, what we can expect in legislation outside of the budget. So what is some legislation that we'll be working on or is gonna be important uh, in the labor community in Rhode Island? Sure, a um, couple of things uh, that, one piece of unfinished business. Uh, last year, uh, the Senate uh, passed uh, legislation to establish a, a nursing home staffing mm -hmm. ratio, passed the Senate uh, by a huge margin. Uh, and unfortunately uh, it did not, uh, even uh, it got into a study commission, which the union uh, was opposed to and not even hardly notified of in the house, which didn't do the job. So uh, that will be a top priority uh, of uh, uh, brothers and sisters at the SEIU and the USCW who represent people in these nursing homes and also the AFL-CIO. It's time for that to happen. Uh, these people have gone through a tremendous amount of stress and, and safety issues uh, getting through this uh, pandemic. And um, you know the the ratio of the staffing the staffing ratio is critical. Um, Absolutely. So it's interesting. It, it, probably most people don't realize. I started organizing in the nursing home industry. I'm dating myself a little bit, but I won my first election uh, at a nursing home, Hopkins Health Center, in 1976. Um, and uh, two things of note. One is that. At that time, and up until up until even the 90s, we had in Rhode Island, by regulation and statute, ratios for nursing homes uh, of state uh, patients to the staff, and they varied depending on the severity of the patients. So we, it's not like we, this is new ground. We're going back to the future here. Mm -hmm. And secondly, uh, just the way of interest, we um, one of the things I negotiated in those first contracts was the staffing issues were a problem at that time still. And we put in language that said, if a worker was out, that worker's pay was split among the other people who worked on that floor. So if you're supposed to have four workers on the floor and one was out, you took that worker's pay and you gave it as a bonus to the other three people who were working because otherwise, the employer, the nursing home, just took the money and put it in their pocket, right. because they got they get they don't get paid they get paid by the patient. So if there's 30 patients in the in the wing or on the floor, 
they get the money for the 30 people. It's just two or three right. people are taking care of them instead of four. Right. So they, this was, we were trying to put, we weren't really trying to put extra money in the worker's pocket. That wasn't the goal. The goal was to provide an incentive for the employer to get the people there to make mm -hmm. sure that, you know, people weren't over, uh, overworked. So, so that'll be a very, very important uh, uh, issue. Uh, the other is uh, maybe, Pat, you can mention uh, the uh, concern that we have on the extension of the continuing contract legislation. Absolutely. So, you know, back in 2019, Governor Raimondo signed into, a, into, into law a bill that was put forward by Senate uh, Majority Leader McCaffrey and Representative Vela Wilkinson in the House that uh, created the continuing contract law that would uh, prohibit public sector employers, whether they're municipalities or, you know, uh, school committees from unilaterally changing terms and conditions of a contract at the end of the agreement. You know, really based upon what we've seen after the East Providence uh, case in 2009. So after many years of lobbying by many of the unions as part of the AFL-CIO, Governor Raimondo signed that bill in, into law back in 2019. But there's still another part of the workforce that are in public service jobs particularly the workers that work directly for the state of Rhode Island or through the various agencies, for example, higher education. And what we're hoping to do is have that law extended to all public sector workers so that this, uh, you know, kind of uh, sort of Damocles isn't always holding uh, over their head while they're going to the bar is to have both parties at the table have equal power. Pat, it seems like we lost- Well, in the private sector, that, okay, Pat, is that, am, yeah. am I back? We just, yeah, we lost okay. you for a minute. So I just wanna make sure you repeat that so it doesn't get lost. Yep. So uh, one, of the, one of the goals of collective bargaining law in Rhode Island and really across the country is that both parties have equal power when they come to the bargaining table. No one has a hammer uh, and the other side isn't always a nail. But in Rhode Island, the way the law has evolved over time, the parties don't have equal power. Public service workers don't have the right to strike like we do in the private sector. So uh, with, without any clear direction on what happens when the parties come to an impasse, the concern always is, is that the party with more power, in this case, the employer, can just set the terms and conditions unilaterally. And that defeats the purpose of collective bargaining. So by extending the collective bar uh, the continuing contract law to all public service workers, uh, it, it reestablishes a balance of power and will lead to better outcomes. Not necessarily more money or not necessarily more benefits. Of course, that's what we would look for, but it's a better bargaining relationship to help solve problems that arise in the workplace. Okay. A uh, couple of other uh, issues that we will be uh, promoting is a, uh, we have in Rhode Island, one of the, well, I think we were the first state in the country to have a program uh, that's uh, administered under our TDI program called TCI, which is Temporary Caregivers Insurance. Uh, and that deals with people who are taking care of a loved one, um, you know, um, in our, they, they pay in that money themselves, uh, but it gives them an opportunity to, take that time off uh, with pay. Uh, we'd like to see that extended uh, this year from four weeks to six weeks, and then the following year from six weeks to eight weeks. Uh, mm -hmm. 
It was a, a you know an experimental program that's been in effect now for about seven or eight years. It's worked very well. Um, it has uh, provided a tremendous uh, amount of economic security to people who find themselves in a, uh, the need to take care of their loved ones. Right. Um, we are be also looking for an increase in the unemployment insurance maximum uh, benefit that's been frozen for many, many years. It's gone up a little bit by formula, but it had been frozen and we think it's time for that to uh, get a uh, jump, particularly after what we've, what we've just gone through. And um, presently, the uh, Director of Labor and Training has the power to give exemptions to the time and a half law uh, for uh, Sunday work and for holiday work. Uh, we think that that should go through the General Assembly and it shouldn't go through the, uh, the governor, uh, the executive branch. So we've been fighting for that for years. We were recently successful uh, in lobbying uh, an attempt by the Providence Journal of all people that were looking for a time and a half exemption. Turns out they had been cheating the workers for many, many years and had to mm -hmm. pay back like hundreds of thousands of dollars. And then after they paid the money back, admitted they cheated, then they said, well, let's get the law changed so we don't have to pay it going forward. Yeah. So uh, it's, it's uh, we think, it, you know, if there are, there are, sometimes there are legitimate reasons for exemptions, but they should be done into the, under the light of the General Assembly where it affects everybody and doesn't happen uh, quietly. Right. Um, one other, one other thing that uh, just came on our radar screen recently, we've been working with a group of uh, uh, people from the environmental community. And may, maybe, Pat, maybe uh, give a little uh, highlight on that, because this, this is sort of a new and exciting uh, adventure for us. Yeah, absolutely, George. So, you know, I, I think, you know, one of the knocks on Rhode Island is that whenever there's a recession, our state is the first state in and the last state out of a recession. So given everything that's gone on with COVID and the, the lack of support from the current administration in Washington, you know, there seems to be an opportunity to plan for how Rhode Island emerges from this current recession. And wouldn't it be a great idea if we use green infrastructure and green manufacturing and a green economy as our stepping stool out of the recession and launching us into a generation's worth of work trying to make Rhode Island the leader in the country when it comes to green infrastructure and green manufacturing. So we've had a number of conversations with some of our environmental partners and friends in the General Assembly to think about what that looks like. And there's some concrete things that we can do that will help the economy, help working class people, and especially you know, be mindful of this idea of using uh, the green economy as a way to have a just transition into a new, a new economic reality. You know, we need to be mindful not just of our energy veterans, folks that work in carbon-based emission fields and that they don't get kicked to the curb, but we have to be mindful of our underrepresented communities in the state and how in the past we've made siting decisions and uh, locations that uh, just disproportionately impact communities of color. So we need to create this new economy that transitions us away from the old way of doing things. And there's a couple of, you know, kind of wonky ideas and then there's some big picture ideas. So just one simple example, you know, we have this great uh, quasi public agency in the state of Rhode Island known as the Infrastructure Bank. And they are a lender that helps municipalities and school departments for uh, projects. We did a lot of work with them when we passed the 2018 school uh, construction bond. But one of the flaws in the current law 
is that if a school department or if a municipality wants to borrow to, uh, let's say they, they want to create a, a 21st century heating system in one of their schools, or they want to have a, a town hall much more environmentally uh, conscious in how energy is delivered, uh, they can't go to the infrastructure bank for the bonding authority to pay for those projects. And as a result, it takes longer to get those things done and it's more expensive for the taxpayers to get done. So if we can make the infrastructure bank the lender for those kind of projects, it will jumpstart us into this green economy and using municipalities and school departments as kind of the linchpin to move in that direction. So that's just one idea. And another one that's really intriguing that I think has a lot of potential benefits for not just uh, our members, but for the community at large is, let's make RIPTA free. Let's make RIPTA absolutely free for all riders. You know, depending on how you, you count the money, it might be about 15 or $20 million that RIPTA receives from, from fares, the money that people pay to ride the bus. That's uh, you know, disproportionately impacts uh, poor communities, working class communities, and definitely impacts more of uh, communities of color that rely on the bus as their primary mode of transportation. So by making RIPTA free and having the state or the federal government backfill that money so there's no loss of revenue to RIPTA, we can have a public service and, and, and essentially induce demand. So if more people are riding the buses, uh, there's more need to have more buses on the road. More buses on the road means people can get around a lot easier and access the services that they need across the state, even if that's just getting from, from home to work safely. Um, but it also means that, you know, if you know, more people are riding RIPTA to get to work or to get to shopping and do whatever, that means there's fewer cars on the road. Fewer cars on the road is going to be another way that we can manage our transition into a net zero uh, emission status, you know, sometime, whether it's, you know, sometime, hopefully within our lifetime, but over the next, you know, decades, we need to transition into this kind of mindset and having RIPTA be a world-class system that is properly funded and targeted to reduce emissions. I think it benefits so many segments of our, of our society in a very simple concrete step to, do, to getting at us in that direction. It's just make RIPTA free. That's really exciting. And that's a lot. Sounds like you guys have your hands full. Yeah, so uh, how, much, how much time do we have left? You know us, we can keep going. I know, we could honestly have another segment on everything. Um, well, but I wanna... actually, uh, I have an idea for another segment, uh, if you're looking for ideas. We have oh, been involved with a number of the unions that represent people at both Lifespan and uh, uh, um, Care New England. Mm -hmm. Uh, they have a proposal to do a merger, which has not been officially uh, proposed yet in terms of an application, but we've been, uh, have a group of uh, the unions. Uh, we have, we represent 10,000 workers that work at either Lifespan or Care New England hospitals. And we uh, want to uh, make sure that the workers are protected and actually jobs are preserved or expanded, hopefully expanded. We have to look at it from the perspective of how it impacts uh, healthcare costs to the collective bargaining, what's gonna be the cost of a healthcare plan and how that, and that is a big issue at the collective bargaining table. And also the quality of care 
because our members are also consumers and or patients. So mm -hmm. there's a lot on the table here. We've been having some preliminary meetings with uh, governmental officials, but I think it would be a good segment uh, for Labor Vision to bring on some of the leaders uh, in, the, in those hospitals uh, and talk about what it means to them given their res re uh, relationships they've already had with both Lifespan and Care New England. So uh, we're not, we don't really have any legislation at the moment uh, on that, but it could, there could be. And we also are protective of our uh, Hospital Conversion Act to make sure that people don't come in and try to weaken that and uh, therefore expedite this merger. So right. that's an issue on the horizon. That's something that uh, would be, I think, a very interesting subject for labor vision. Okay, we'll definitely keep that on the radar then in the coming months. That'd be really a good one. Is there anything else too before we close that you got either of you would like to say before we finish this segment? Just one last thing, George. You know, I think we one other piece of legislation we really are going to be working forward uh, to is having making wage theft a felony. Oh, you know what? Good, good point. Bring that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, right, yeah. right now there's no, there's no incentive for employers to, you know, really face significant penalties if they're going to misclassify their workers and steal their money. I mean, wage theft is exactly what it is. It's stealing workers' money. And oftentimes in the construction industry, but, you know, and sometimes in the hospitality industry, these fly-by-night employers try to chisel as much as they can from their workers and pocket the money themselves while the working people you know, are spending all of their time and effort, you know, trying to do their jobs. And the, the, it isn't the felony to steal that money from these workers. And as a result, the, the, some of the employers, especially some with deep pockets, feel like they'll just take this, this, the hit because it's not going to be a real penalty. If you make wage theft a penalty, now it makes it real because now there's a potential of, you know, significant, you know, um, legal problems for an employer because now they're charged with a felony instead of just a misdemeanor. So optimistically, we feel like if, if that was to become law, it would really change the dynamic and especially some of our, you know, construction and in, uh, in industries. Yeah, that's a good point. And also uh, it's important for people to know that we have the full support of the attorney general on this issue. Uh, in fact, uh, when we put the bill in last year, it was part of the, the official attorney general's package. So it's very important mm -hmm. to have that uh, support and some things we've learned about that is that one of the, by it not being a felon, it makes it much more difficult to chase these employers, uh, the out-of-state employers. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they come into Rhode Island, they do a job, they cheat people, and then they leave. Uh, without it being a felony, it's very hard to track those people down, and it's not taken as seriously by the uh, the court system. So mm -hmm. um, that would be terrific. So. Let me, let me just, I, I would, I'd be remiss if I didn't say at the end of all of our uh, labor vision shows related to legislation, we are the people's lobby. Uh, we're very proud of that. If, if you look over the agenda of the labor movement uh, and the AFL sale over the years, uh, we are the uh, major advocate uh, for legislation that affects all people, whether they're union or non-union, um, the, the, the things that we fight for improve the quality of life uh, for everybody. So um, if you look at the agenda of a lot of groups, it's very selfish, it's very narrow. Uh, like they just wanna take care of this issue or that issue. They wanna enhance their own bottom line or their corporate profits. 
we're here for everybody. We're here to make sure that our society is just and fair. And I, I appreciate you for mentioning yeah, that yeah. too, George. I And I wanna finish with something before we close. How can viewers, I know that with times of uncertainty like this, viewers are maybe questioning how they can take part in legislation or how they can um, make sure their voice is heard because with everything that's happening, I know that a lot of in-person things have changed, everything, everything has changed really, but I wanna make it clear to viewers how they can still have their voices heard. Can either of you touch on that a little bit? You can still write in testimony, still send in written testimony, um, any other pieces that they should know? Uh, you know, certainly, I mean, one of the, the, one of the best things about Rhode Island is that we're so, such a small state. You know, we know who our elected officials are, whether they're the city council person who lives two houses down or the state representative that goes to church with you on Sundays or the state senator that you see in, in the supermarket, you know, hopefully a union supermarket. Uh, in doing your grocery shopping, you know, mm -hmm. it, take advantage of the closeness of our community. You know, it, it, it's not often where you get to, you know, have a state where you could literally pull up to the gas station and the guy pumping his gas next to you is a U.S. senator. You know, so take advantage of the closeness and the relationships and never be afraid to say to your representative, this is what I think should happen. You know, they, they generally like the feedback. You know, oftentimes, you know, you know, People feel as if, oh, I don't want to bother that person. No, bother them. That's what they're there for. That's your, that's your job. Make sure you make that communication. Yeah. And maybe, uh, I, I don't know, at the end of the show, on the, on the show, uh, Erica, you could put down the AFL-CIO phone number and uh, the uh, website or the uh, uh, email address that they could. If they're, if they're interested in getting uh, further information or they'd like to participate or, or any one of these issues that is important to them, they can get in touch with us. Absolutely, we'll share that contact information. All right, well, I wanna thank you both so much for taking the time to be on the show again. Welcome back to the At Home Edition. This is, I think, our second, or for Pat, this is your third time on the At Home Edition. Um, it's only getting easier as we go. Um, but well, you're, you're doing a great job and the Institute does a wonderful job. So keep up the good work. Thank you. Thank you both so much for being on. And hopefully we'll have some good news mid-legislative session at the end of legislative session that we can bring you guys back on and talk about. Absolutely. All right. Be safe out there. Thank you. You too. Everybody that's watching from home. Thank you, Erica. Thank you. Um, and you're watching Labor Vision, the at-home edition. Uh, thank you so much for tuning into this segment. If you've missed any of it, you can check it out on our website. It's www.laborvisionri.org. And we hope to see you back here for the next segment. Thank you so much. Stay safe. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Labor Vision. We appreciate your input and encourage your comments. Labor Vision can be seen on this channel three times each week, Tuesday at 7 p.m., Thursday at 8 p.m., and Saturday at 5 p.m.